this morning, if you were to ask 10 different people who God is, it's likely that you would get 10 different responses. Some people, when they think of God, they think of God like a state trooper. That God's hiding in the bushes, waiting to jump out and get you and hit the lights. And so when you're around certain people or you're in certain places, maybe you act differently. Maybe you, you change the way that you talk and you change the way that you walk and you change all the different things about you because you think, man, if this person hears me, God may hear me and God may see me. But then when you're on your own, you hit the accelerator. When you think nobody's watching or when you think God is, in, is indifferent, you hit the accelerator and really go as fast and as hard as you want to go. Other people think God, of God less as a state trooper and more as a granddaddy. You know, my granddaddy, it didn't matter what I did, he told me I was great. You know, anybody else say granddaddy's like that? It really didn't matter what I did, granddaddy just said it was good, it's fine, son. You know, matter of fact, he was one of those that he would go to my defense and he could know that I, and I know he knew that I was wrong. But my parents would want to discipline me, and this, there's nothing worse as a parent when a grandparent does this, just FYI, grandparents. But he would, oh, Jimmy, don't worry about him, right? And he'd just give you a, a honey bun and life was good and you didn't worry about it anymore, right? And a lot of us think about God that way, that God doesn't care what we do. He overlooks all the bad things that we do. He overlooks all of our sinfulness. He overlooks, and he's just ready to hand us an RC cola and a moon pie and move on about life, right? For other people, you think of God like a genie, maybe. That, that if we can just do the right things and pray the right formula and, and rub the lamp just the right way, that, that God is there for us, that God is there for my happiness. God is there for my wealth. God is there for my health. God is there for my prosperity. And so I approach God almost like a superstition, that if I come to God in just the right way, with just the right spirit, at just the right time, and has just the right things, that God is going to give me exactly what I want. For other people, perhaps, they would think of God more distant than that. They, they would believe that there's a God, and they would trust that there's a God, but they would think that God is really indifferent to us, and that God is in a reactionary position, always reacting to the decisions that we make, and just kind of hoping that we don't mess up all that He's made and all that He's built. And it's really a strange thing that you would get so many different responses to the question about who God is when God has told us who He is. God has revealed himself to us. God has told us who he is and what he's about and what he's passionate about and what he abhors. He's told us all of those things, and yet still, still there are a thousand different explanations. And I think for those of us who believe through Jesus that we have relationship with God, the reason that even among us there might be different understandings of who God is is because of at least one of two reasons. Number one, we've never actually been interested enough or curious enough to read what he has said about himself. We've never, we've never had a passion. We've never really been driven to know. And so we've just waited on the things that we've been told or perhaps the things that we've assumed or maybe the, the rationalizations that we've made. But I think there's another group of people, and I think this is the primary group that's in view in our text this morning. That there's a group of people that know what God has said, that know how God has revealed himself, but don't like it. And have, are instead and are seeking to, to change what God has said so that it fits within their worldview, so that it fits within their lifestyle, so that it fits within what they want God to be. That they're the type of person that they read the Bible and they say, oh, no, it can't be. 
It can't be. There has to be another explanation for why God has said that. There has to be another reason why God would say that he hates this or loves this or believes this or is passionate about that. And so they look for justifications and rationalizations of all of the different ways that they can understand God as they want him to be. That is that we want a God. We want a God. We want his security. We want his provision. We want his deliverance. But we want a God on our own terms. We want our God on our own terms. We want the type of God that we're looking for rather than actually seeking out the God who is. The God who is. And that's exactly what we see in our passage this morning. That Israel wanted a God. They, they wanted the God that delivered them from Egypt. They wanted the God that had parted the Red Sea. They, they wanted a God like that, but they wanted him on their terms. They wanted him to be the type of God that they were looking for. They wanted him to be the type of God that they were desiring. And so if you're familiar with Exodus, you're probably already aware of this. But what's, what happens in Exodus is you have these, these concurrent narratives that are taking place. Okay, so chapters 20 through 31, you have Moses, and he's up on top of Sinai, and he's receiving the covenant, right? He's, he gets the Ten Commandments, he receives the instructions of worship, he receives the instructions of the tabernacle. And then when we get to chapter 32, we, we're seeing what's happening at the exact same time except at the bottom of the mountain. While Moses is up on top of the mountain, what's happening down at the bottom of the mountain? That Moses is up there for 40 days and for 40 nights, and for those 40 days and 40 nights, the scene down at the bottom just deteriorates. It gets worse and it gets worse. And in fact, chapter 32 is the very first time that we've heard from God, I mean heard from the people of Israel, since chapter 24. And in chapter 24, what you remember is Moses comes and he presents the covenant to the people of God and the Ten Commandments. And do you remember what they say? In chapter 24, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. In other words, we accept the covenant. We are thankful for the covenant. And the stipulations of the covenant, the, the laws that there abide by the covenant, we commit ourselves that we will obey them perfectly. And we will obey them fully, understanding that that is our end of the covenant, that he will be our God, and we will be his people, and that we will enter into relationship with one another. And so it's a stark, breathtaking picture that you get in chapter 32. Chapter 24, we will obey him. Chapter 32, make us more gods, Aaron. Make us more gods. That the very next first thing that we hear come out of the mouths of humans after they entered into the covenant with God is disobedience to the Lord, disobedience to what he had called them to be. And so there's a picture of us and there's a picture of gospel, of the gospel that's here and it's important for us to understand. You see, impatience is one of the markers, one of the distinctives of the human condition. No, notice what he says, when the people saw that Moses was delayed, right? That's impatience, isn't it? That they're there, and they're at the bottom, and one day goes by, and, and pretty much every other time that Moses has went up on the mountain, he's come right back down and said, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord would have us to do, and this is where the Lord would, would have us to go. But not this time. This time he's up there for 40 days and for 40 nights, and they say, well, who knows what's going to happen to this guy? And they become impatient as Moses is delayed. But this isn't the first time in the scriptures that we've seen this in the big story, is it? You remember Abraham and Sarah? God comes to Abraham and to Sarah and he says, I'm going to make you a nation that's going to bless every other nation. That you're going to become more numerous than the stars of the sky, right? But then what happens? They don't have a baby. There's no baby that's coming. There's no heir that's coming. And they get impatient. 
That God's timing is not on their timing. That God is not operating on their schedule. And because of their condition, because of their nature, because of the corruption of the flesh, what do they do? They say, okay, all right, here's what we're going to do. I've, I've got a plan. God, I'm going to bail you out of your, pl- your problem. God, I'm going to fix the issue that you find yourself in. And so they take uh, Sarah's, Sarah's servant, they marry her to Abraham, and here comes Ishmael, the son of the flesh. Now think about Jacob and Esau. You have Esau, and he is the firstborn. He is the birthright. He is the one that is supposed to receive the, the blessing of Jacob. But one day, this hairy beast of a man, Esau, goes out, and he goes out hunting, and he comes back, and he's famished. And he says, my brother, give me some food lest I die. And Jacob sees his opportunity. Jacob, always cunning, always the deceiver, says, well, I would love to give you a big bowl of beans, bro. But here's what it's going to cost you. I need your birthright. And Esau says, well, what good is my birthright if I die? Give me the beans. You can have the petty birthright. What happened to Esau? He was impatient, wasn't he? He was impatient. He didn't even take the time. I, I told the, the, the earlier service, he's like, you can't make it, call it a ham sandwich. So I guess it's a lamb sandwich, right? That he wouldn't even make him go out and go, go to the cupboard and make himself a sandwich to, to pass over his hunger. Instead, he trades his birthright, his standing in the kingdom of God. For a bowl of beans. And here we are with, with the people of Israel, and they're doing the same thing again. And I bet that if you look in your life, that's what you'll see. After all, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Patience. Patience. That means patience isn't natural to you. Patience is supernatural. Patience isn't the result of your flesh. Patience is the result of the Spirit of God indwelling you and changing your nature and changing the way that you think and changing the way that you process. Now, where does this impatience come from? This impatience comes from the fact that we want God our way. We want God our way. We want God to march according to the beat of our drum, according to our timeline, according to our desires and our plans. It's this assumption that most of us hold from birth that God exists for us rather than us existing from God. And that's why they've grown impatient. That's why we grow impatient. That's why they demanded that Aaron make them an image of God, that God had sent locusts and hail upon Israel. He had divided the Red Sea. He had fed them from the sky and given them water out of a rock. But where is he now? Where is he now? They had seen all of these miraculous things. And I bet if you look in your life, that's the story of it, isn't it? That for many of us who have walked with Jesus, we can look back over the archives of our lives and we can see the hand of God. We can see it. We may not have even known it in the moment, but looking back, we can look at the darkest days and the hardest days and the, and the nights that we toiled and tossed back and forth, the, the times we soaked our pillows like David with, with tears. And we can look back, and I, if I were to ask you, how do you know that, you're, that God is with you, you would start telling me the stories. But today you're, in, you're distraught. Today you're dismayed. And why are you distraught? Why are you dismayed? You say, I can't see him. He's not here. Where is the Lord? It's not what he did for me yesterday. It's not what he did for me last year. It's not the way that I can see his hands all the way through my life. It's that I can't see him now. Where is he now? See, here is Israel in the midst of the wilderness. Their leader who has represented God to them up on the mountain and absent. And they're wondering, how am I going to know? In other words, we want to relate to God through our senses. But God insists that we relate to Him through our faith. 
We want to relate to God through our senses, but God insists that we relate to Him in faith. That we want God to give us a religious experience in which we can feel existentially in who we are, that we can sense in the atmosphere, that we can that, that will make us emotional, that will, will overcome us. We, we want something that we can point to and say, there is God, but where is the faith in what you can see? Where is the faith in what you can feel? Think about in our text how often, how often the, the senses are coming up, right? It says, to come down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron. And they said, make us gods. The word make there is the same word that you get in Genesis 2. It's the same word from Genesis 2 when, when God takes the dust of the earth and he makes he forms and makes Adam, right? It's the same word when he, when he takes the rib out of Adam and he, he fashions and forms and makes Eve. In other words, it's different than Genesis 1 when God creates ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing, in other words. He creates without any resources, without any dust or powder or, or, or water. But then in chapter 2, he takes what is there and he forms what he can bring into his hands and he makes it into something. And that's the picture here, saying take what we can touch. Take what we can see. Take what we can feel. Take what we can hear. Take this, Aaron. You take Moses' place and fashion into us for us something, a God that is shiny and a God that we can love and a God that we can see and a God that we can bow down for. So he goes on. And and what are they going to make it out of? They're going to make it out of gold, right? Rings of gold, rings that you can touch and feel on your finger. Gold, give us a shiny God like the gods of Egypt. Give us a shiny God that will represent power and prosperity to us. Give us a shiny God of precious metals. After all, did God not plunder the Egyptians and give us the gold to begin with? Give us a shiny God out of the ears, right? It, 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 even there's an allusion to this sense of hearing, right? This this. This uh, what medium in which we're able to take in and absorb words. Again, rings of gold. Again, ears, right? And so there's this concept, this over and again, nine different times, as a matter of fact, in, chap- in verses 1 through 32, it talks about the word make. Give us something that appeals to our senses, something that we can see. This morning, you know the most common reason that people give, the most common explanation that people give for changing churches? And I don't, we don't hear this a lot around here, but the most common reason, if you were to find any person in Calhoun County or Alabama, wherever, you know what they'd say? I just don't feel him anymore there. I just don't feel God there like I used to. I don't feel him in my bones. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. I just, I don't get emotional. I used, to get, I used to get tears. I don't get tears anymore. I used to get goosebumps. I don't get goosebumps anymore. And so I just want to go to a place where I feel him, where I feel him. Brothers and sisters, that's not faith. That's not faith. That's superficial emotion. That's cheap. That's on you. You, What control does the church have over your emotions? God is not someone that you feel. He is someone you know. He is someone you trust. He is someone you believe in. He is someone you have confidence in. He's not always someone that you feel. That's the lesson here. That's the lesson here. So they, like us, take action to make themselves feel better. That's what they're doing. They take lessons to... Now, one of the things that may surprise you is throughout this text, it's always coming up, and we're going to talk about this again in just a second, it's always coming up God's deliverance of Israel, right? I, that he, he, They have been delivered out of Egypt. They've been delivered from slavery, right? And, 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 but what's, so what's striking to me is, is, I guess all the time growing up, I always thought in my mind that when they told 
when Moses, when God tells, I'm sorry, when Israel tells Aaron to make them gods, that he's make, they're making false gods, that he's making uh, new gods. That's not what he's doing. And, and there's never a reference to another name of another god. Instead, you'll see right here at the end of verse 4, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, Israel was not in the dark on which God brought them out of Egypt. They knew this. They knew that it was Yahweh. They knew that Yahweh had had sent the plagues on Egypt. They knew that Yahweh had parted the Red Sea. They knew that Yahweh had had sent the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and rained down the bread and poured water out of the rock. They, They knew all of these things. They weren't looking for a new God. They just wanted their God the way that they wanted him. They wanted a representation in their camp of their God. They wanted to be able to see him. So I think of this as like this is like Burger King, right? Have it your way. So this is Yahweh, your way. That's what they're looking for. They want Yahweh, but they want Yahweh to come to them on their terms. They want Yahweh to be to be like all of the Egyptian gods. See, in Egypt, the way that you would mark the most powerful God is you would mark the most powerful God with what? A young bull. A young bull. So they took the most precious metal that they had that God had helped them to plunder from the Egyptians and they formed him into the shape of a bull. This is supposed to be a place of honor. Except a bull is not worthy of the name of God. A bull was created by the hands of God, by the thought of God. It is not worthy of God. The problem with, with Israel is they had too much Egypt in them. They had too much Egypt in their heart. Too much Egypt in their minds. The problem with the church is we have too much America in us. Too much America in our minds. Too much America in our hearts. And so we begin to form Yahweh. We begin to form Jesus Christ, not into the, not in our, our lives in conformity to His, but His life into conformity of our society, in conformity with our views, in conformity with our politics, in conformity with our perspective, in conformity with the culture in which we live. You see, that's what idols are. Idols are our way of making our priorities sacred. An idol is when I take my my priorities and the things that are important to me and my perspectives on God and my views on the world and I attempt to apply them in a religious context so that now I can bow down to what I want to bow down to. I can be passionate about what I want to be passionate about. I can love what I want to love. See, for most of us, it sounds silly to bow down and worship a golden cow. I doubt that's a temptation that many of y'all have. It sounds silly, but is it really that much sillier than living for a pontoon boat or Netflix or Fox News or a ball field? See, what's your day built around? What's your life built around? Are you trying to fit the glory of God into the margins of your life? Are you, are, are you trying, are, do you have your priorities set and say to God, as long as you fit around these priorities in my schedule, as long as you fit around these priorities in my budget, as long as you fit around these priorities in my passion, then I have a place for you. But Lord, you're going to have to fit. In other words, are you fitting God into your life? Or are you, fitting your, are you, are you fi- retrofitting your life to God's priorities? 
Are you orienting yourself around who God is or are you asking God to orient, reorient him in the fullness of his glory, in the fullness of his splendor, in the fullness of his holiness to orient and calibrate himself around you? What do your priorities reflect in your life? Is it anything less than idolatry? You'll notice that throughout this passage as the deliverance continues to come up, verse 7, verse 7, that's the one that really is meant to just drop Moses' jaw, okay? Now, you'll remember, you'll realize as you read Exodus, as you read throughout the, the Old Testament on into the New, that there's this formula that comes up that you are my people whom I delivered out of Egypt. But what does it say in verse 7? Listen to this. This is the Lord confronting Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Do you see this? Do you know what that is? This is God distancing himself from his people. Does any, does, Moses is not under any illusion that he is the one that has delivered the people from Israel. Moses raised a piece of wood up in the air and the, and the water parted. He's raised sticks in his li- all his life. He's never parted a sea before, Okay. Moses bangs against a rock and the water pours. He doesn't think he did that. But here's God saying, these aren't my people anymore. They've broken the covenant. And by the way, it was within God's full right under the covenantal laws to be able to sever himself from Israel at this point. They broke the covenant on them, not him. They severed the relationship, not him. He says, these are your people, not my people. You delivered them from Israel, apparently, because I didn't. They they don't love me. They aren't following after me. So we have God here distancing himself from his people. And the implication is that it was the God who saved them that now would give them over to their own desires, give them over to their own perversions, give them over to what they want so that ultimately they would destroy themselves. That they wanted a God to go their way, to make them feel better, to make everything make sense to them. But for God, God's way is the only way. He doesn't fit his way into ours. In fact, if there is a way that is better than God's way, then God is either one, he's not all-knowing and all-powerful enough to allow the greatest way to happen, or he's not good enough to want you to have the greatest way. He's not God, in other words. And so you'll notice at the end of verse 7, it says, they corrupted themselves. What is that? That, That's a word of what? Self-destruction, isn't it? These are words of self. This is what sinners do. We self-destruct. That we go our way. We do what makes sense to us. We do what feels right to us. But in the end, in the end, it leads us ultimately to our destruction. Now, from the perspective of Israel, this wouldn't have felt that way. From the perspective of Israel, they're doing what? They're doing a good thing. They're going to honor Yahweh, aren't they? From the perspective of Israel, they're, they're given an offering of gold. From the perspective of Israel, they, wanna, they want the presence of God in their midst so that they can bow down to him and honor him and revere him. But that's how self-improvement works in the lives of sinners. That very often self-destruction feels like self-improvement in the beginning. Self-destruction feels like self-improvement in the beginning. I want you to think all of the ways that we try to improve ourselves today. Positive thinking. All right, go to the library, go to the self-help section, and you see what the overwhelming message is. Think better thoughts. Think happier thoughts. Think more positive thoughts. Ten ways to better thinking, right? 
And what's the problem, y'all? Is your thoughts come from your heart, and your heart is desperately wicked. That you can think all the positive thoughts that you want to think, but you're still not going to be a positive person. You can think all the happy thoughts that you want, you're still not going to be a happy person. You can think all the good thoughts that you want to think, you're still not going to be a good person. Right? Not without the intervention of God in your life. Other people, they might think of it this way. They might, the way they might approach it is, if I do enough good things, it'll eventually circle back around to me. Right? What goes around comes around. And y'all, this is karma. This is karma. We packaged in an American, for an American palette. That's all that is. And what happens? It doesn't. It feels like self-improvement, but it spins back around, not to get back to you, to the good, to, to elevate you, but instead to destroy you, to crush you. Other people, they do it by spoiling them, themselves, that, that I will be able to, to feel better. I'll just buy myself all the things that I'm worth, all the things that I deserve, all the things that, that I've earned. Other people do it the opposite way. They do it by self-denial. I'll deny myself all the things that I've earned. I'll deny myself all, by, the, by the deprecation of myself, by the mutilation of my flesh. Then, then I will have a greater worth. Then I will reach a, a deeper zen. Then I will become more centered as a person. But it's the way to death because it is your way to salvation. It's a self-rescue. And sinners can't self-rescue. With every act, with every soup kitchen you work in, with every denial, of the flesh, with every swipe of the credit card, with every good deed you do that hope you hope circles back around, every single one of them is a declaration to God, I don't need your salvation, I can take care of it just fine. Every one of them are an act of defiance against who God is. It's your way to worship. God's way is more than what you feel in this moment. God's way is assured, and it's the only way of salvation that's, that lasts. You see, You'll notice a, a proverb talks about this. Proverb 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There is a way it seems right. It seems right. It, it, it seems as though, it, it, so what does that mean? It feels good. It feels good. It feels true. It feels like goosebumps. It feels like emotion. It feels like passion. It feels like zeal. It feels all the right things that you're, you're wanting to do, right? So this is self-improvement that we're talking about. But its end is the way to death. It's self-destruction. It feels like self-improvement, but it is self-destruction. Think about this. There are a lot of things that you can do that feel good. You know, you can abandon your family. I've seen it done. You can abandon your family so that you feel freer and you can feel good. You can justify it any way that you want to. The human mind is brilliant when it comes to this. You can have an affair. And for the first time, you have somebody in your mind at least that respects you the way that you ought to be respected, that listens to you the way that you ought to listen, and that affair can feel good. You, you can go to the mall and you can swipe your credit card until you can't swipe it anymore. And you can come home in a shiny new car filled with shiny new boxes and be surrounded by your stuff and you can feel good about it. 
You can self-medicate with alcohol and with, with painkillers and with drugs and with pornography. And in the moment at least, you can feel good and you can feel numb and you can feel distant. But the problem is, the problem is, is its end is the way to death. The problem is, is that you are sowing something that one day you are going to reap. And you may not be able to feel it in the moment. But your way, your way is a self-rescue. And self-rescue is a self-destruction. It's really breathtaking how quickly they break the covenant, isn't it? That's the picture of who we are. That's the picture of our hearts. God gives us a word. We say, God, I'm going to follow this with everything I've got. Lord, you've got everything. I am all in with you, Jesus. And then 30 minutes later, right? (laughs) 30 minutes later, you're like, yeah, you know, I'm a little bit tired today, actually. (laughs) Would it be okay if we started this in the morning? Lord, I'm going to commit my life to share the gospel. The opportunity comes, the Spirit prompts. I don't know if this is the right one, Lord. We don't just break it, we break it immediately. R.C. Sproul, I heard him say one time, he said, I've never loved the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my strength, and with all of my mind for five seconds in my whole life. I've never done it. So when they come to, to, to... Aaron, and they ask him, make us gods. What this is, is this is the bride having an affair on her honeymoon. This is getting fired on your first day on the job. This is going and looking for prostitutes while your family's in the back seat. Here is the Lord having entered into this covenant, saying, I want to relate to you. I want to love you. I want to defend you. I want to provide for you. I want to protect for you. But you see, that is the fatal flaw of the old covenant. It's not the law. The law is pure. The law is holy. The law is perfect. The law is wonderful. It's not the covenant. The covenant is gracious. It's our God wanting to live in relationship with us. The fatal flaw of the old covenant is my heart. The fatal flaw of the old covenant is your heart. And that's why we need a new covenant. That's why we need a new covenant. That's why I have Jeremiah 31 on here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant. Not a a different version of the covenant, not a a, a remediated covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. See if this language sounds similar. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, we had to have a covenant that didn't revolve around us at all. We had to have a covenant that was given by God, upheld by God, and applied by God from start to finish. We had to have a covenant that wouldn't just change what we were to do, but would change what we wanted to do. And brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus has come to inaugurate in us upon his arrival, upon his death, and upon his resurrection and ascension. He has inaugurated a new covenant that applies the word of God to my heart, not just so that I will do differently, but so that I will want differently and love differently and desire differently than I've ever loved or desired before. I wonder this morning what path you're on. I wonder if you're on a path of self-rescue or upon Jesus' surrender. 
I wonder if you are on a path that makes you feel good in the moment. Or I wonder if you're on a path that is self-improvement from your own brokenness. I wonder if you're on a path that is trying to keep the rules good enough and be moral enough so that the good stuff will circle its way back to you because I'm telling you this morning, that's not God's way. That way will kill you. Those paths offer you no hope. But if you're reading this story, if you're reading this story in one of our novels, it's going to go differently than it goes in this text. You see, if you were reading this in one of our novels, how would you have this story come to the end? That God is good to his people, delivers his people, loves his people, treasures his people, upholds his people, defends his people. His people immediately reject him and do the exact thing that he tells them not to do. How would you write the end of that story? That God is going to crush them and replace them, right? He's going to crush them and replace them. Why? Because that's what's just here. That's what's right here. That's what's rational here. That's what's sensible here. That here is our way, and we are dead set on our way, and here is God's way, and God's way is the only way, and there is an insurmountable gap between the two so that it appears as though there is no hope whatsoever that God's people might be reconciled with God himself. And so the story is here, and it is pleading and begging and desiring hope. And then there is hope. And then there is hope. You see, a mediator has to bridge the gap. A mediator has to bridge the gap. Verse 10 is a strange, strange verse. When Gayla read it, I even noticed her, the inflection of her voice wavered a little bit because it is a strange, strange verse. It says, now therefore, let me alone. This is God talking to Moses. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. He says, I, I'm going to make a nation out of you, Moses. I'm going to forget all these people. I'm going to crush them. So let me alone that I will go and do it. Now, why would we point out that? Because you see, it was a rhetorical device. It was an invitation to Moses to intervene on behalf of his people. In other words, if you don't let me alone, if you intercede on behalf of the people, I know that I'm going to be merciful. Let me alone so that I'm not going to be gracious. Let my mercy alone. Let my grace alone. Let my goodness alone. Let my love alone. Let me alone so that I can pour out my justice and wrath upon them by what they deserve. In other words, Moses, step in the gap here. Step in the gap and I'm going to pour out mercy instead. Step in the gap and I'm going to pour out grace instead. This is mercy here, church. This is mercy right here. You see, only God's bride cheats on him on the honeymoon with it, and his immediate reaction is laced with mercy. Only God does that. Only God does that. In verses 30 through 32, it actually becomes even clearer. Let's read those verses together. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. So now he's come down off the mountain, he's confronting the people, and now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin, but Moses cannot atone for the sins of people, Moses is a sinner himself. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, the people has sinned a great sin, they have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Have bolder words ever been spoken by a man to his God? It reminds us of Paul in Romans 9, doesn't it? When he says, oh Lord, if I could be accursed, that some of them might be saved. If I could be cut off from your grace and mercy, that I might see my countrymen come into the kingdom. Lord, I would do it. I would do it. 
But what Paul knew is, and what Moses knew is that God's justice will not allow an innocent man to be condemned. Paul, on the sake of Jesus, Moses was up, ascended on the mountain. He did not commit idolatry. He was with God himself. He was on his people. And so here is Moses appealing to the justice of God. God, I will stand in front of these guilty people. I will stand in front of my kindred. I will stand in front of them. But if you are going to condemn me, you must wipe me out too. You must take my name out of the book. You see, you have an innocent man standing as the substitute of guilty men. Moses couldn't atone because Moses wasn't an actually innocent man. But one day, one day, there was a man that was coming who would be truly innocent. A man who would obey every letter of the law of Moses in a way that Moses himself never could. A man who would come and stand before his people. And on that day, God would punish the innocent man. He would take all of his justice and all of his wrath and he would pour it upon his own son, pure as snow, white as the morning. And poured over him is the filth and the wrath and the anger that has been stored up from this generation for. Forward. So that, so that each one of us might stand before our Heavenly Father with the same message of Israel. Mercy has won the day for me. Mercy has won the day for me. Mercy, not my good works. Mercy, not my self-rescue. Mercy, not all of my plans. Mercy, not my positive thing. Mercy has won the day for me. You see the canyon between our path and God's path seems clear and hopeless, but church, we are not hopeless. We are not hopeless because we have a mediator in Jesus that has bridged the gap. We have an innocent man standing in our place. We have mercy and not judgment. Mercy and not condemnation. Mercy and not wrath waiting on us. And the question in front of you and the question in front of me is whether or not we'll stop loving all of the imposters of the world. If we'll stop trying to fix ourselves and whether or not we will love this Jesus with all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. Because, because through Jesus, through Jesus, mercy wins the day. Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.